the one thing that has to come back into the church is the spirit of martyrdom. Right? Has to. Um, I always tell people, if you haven't found a gospel worth dying for, you have not found a gospel worth living for yet. Um, so, it uh, it is a shame that the Muslims put us to shame in their level of consecration and commitment to a cause whenever we have the true cause. And to them it's a high honor to die for their cause and yet Christians fight and struggle for every last breath to hang on. Now I agree, don't go by sickness or disease. But if they're going to do something to you or someone's going to kill you for the sake of Christ, then bring honor to your commander-in-chief and die honorably singing his praises and knowing that you're fixing to enter into his arms. And you do it with honor and glory and without... Just don't be a wimp on it. Alright? So, next. Alright. Still in healing and the atonement and we're going to have to hurry here. Page 22. Point number 3. James 5. 13-20. James tells... Now, the book of James was written to essentially... That's why there's a lot in it that is generally, you will go through that, but once you become a more mature Christian, some of those things won't apply to you the same way they did when you began. For instance, an older Christian or more mature Christian should not need to be anointed with oil. Right? They should be, if anything, they should be the ones anointing with oil and not need ministry for the sick, technically. But here he says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith, which is what the elders are going to pray, shall save or heal and deliver the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if... He have committed sins, which proves that all sickness is not the result of a sin. They, the sins, shall be forgiven him. Now, notice several things here. First off, is any among you afflicted? Let him, what? Pray. Now, the next verse down, it says, is any sick among you? Which proves that affliction is not sickness. Because he didn't give you two options for the same thing. One, he says, if you're afflicted, you pray. If you're sick... Call for somebody else to pray. Right? So being afflicted, well, this is my affliction. That's not a biblical term. Okay? Affliction usually has to do either internally or externally in a form, I don't want to say of punishment, but external affliction means someone outside afflicting you would be persecution. Internal affliction is fasting. Okay? You afflict your soul when you fast. Meaning, you put your soul under a chastisement or under discipline. And that's the purpose of it. Okay? But it is not sickness. Okay? Now, next, it says that he calls for the elders of the church and they pray over him. You don't pray... And understand, that's why I said this is for new Christians, predominantly, because you're not praying for yourself, you're getting somebody else to do it for you. And they're going to come, and if they pray over you, they're going to anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. And now notice what it says. They're going to pray the prayer of faith, right? And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. You notice it doesn't say the will of God. Right? Now understand, healing is the will of God, but I'm making a point. It doesn't say they're going to pray, and if it's God's will, you'll be healed. 
it says that the prayer of faith from the elder will save the sick. So the saving of the sick, the healing of the sick, comes through the ministry of the elders to the person and requires no faith of the person other than to call for the elders to come. You understand that? The elders are praying the prayer of faith. So, is, so if they're praying the prayer of faith, who is having the faith? The elders. Right? Not the sick. If the sick had faith, they wouldn't need the elders to come pray for them. Okay? Isn't that pretty simple? Now, the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. Now, notice this next part. And if they have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Now, when did it mention sins? After the person is raised up. Right? So, what came first? The healing or the forgiveness of sins? Healing came first. Isn't that right? So this idea, well, you've got to get to sin in your life before you can get healed. And if, you, if I pray for you and you don't get healed, there must be sin in your life. You are opposite of the Bible. Right? If you do that from this day forth, you are violating Scripture. You're wrong, and now you know you're wrong. And so all you're going to be doing is trying to hide behind some type of religiosity and not admit that maybe you don't have the power to blow the fuzz off a peach. Right? Okay? So... Get busy, do your job, do what's supposed to be, and don't put the blame on the sick. The sick person... Okay, there's two people involved in healing. The believer who lays hands and the sick. Now, the, belie- the, the sick person is doing their job, they're the sick. The believer needs to do his job and lay hands, and then the Lord will do his job and recover them. Isn't that simple? Now, next. Move on here. Let me go to... We know how sin came in. I'm not going to go into that. Go to page 24. Point 4. Is healing in the atonement? John 3.14. Let's read it first. Jesus. A lot of people know John 3.16, but they don't know that what Jesus was talking about just before and just after. So in John 3.14, Jesus is speaking and he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, notice where it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, means for the same purpose with the same result. That's what even so means. Just like it. Must the Son of Man be, li- or, yeah, the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, when it refers to Moses lifting up a serpent, that goes to point B, which is listed in Numbers 21. So you don't have to turn there. If you have the manual, you can just look at point B there. In Numbers 21, verse 4, it says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. This is what they said. This is what God considers speaking against him. They said, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? So speaking against God means asking a question that would question his motives and question why he would allow you to go through something. So I'm not going to ask how many is guilty of that because we'd all have to raise hands. Anybody did, I'd have to cast a lying devil out of you. So, just thank God there is forgiveness. Amen. Now, he goes on. He says, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. 
And the Lord, see, you can tell Moses, remember Moses had a speaking, you know, a, kind of a, a, he stuttered or had a speaking problem, impediment, basically. You can tell that, because right there, when you try to read that, our soul loatheth its light bread. You see, you can just hear that. You can hear it in the Spirit. Anyway. <laughs> and the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Boy, this is a sharp bunch, isn't it? We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent. Set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. You notice how he says that? And it shall come to pass. You know what it means to come to pass? That's kind of like saying, and they shall recover. You see that? Because it shall come to pass. Right? You can say the same thing. You say, the believers will lay hands on the sick. What? And, and they will recover. It shall come to pass that they'll recover. So it's, it's almost the same thing. And he says, And Moses made a serpent of brass. And, or let me, let me go back here. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, is Numbers 21 and John 3.14 talking about the same incident? Yes, right? Now, why, now, think about this. When the serpent was lifted up on the pole, the reason he was was because of sin. And anybody that looked at that serpent on the pole was forgiven of that sin, essentially, right? And they were healed, right? Now, the people didn't go to God because of the sin. They went to God because they were dying, Right? So the reason for the lifting of the serpent, we know the background reason was for the sin. But we know that the physical reason, the the front reason, was because they were dying physically, right? And so we see in the crucifixion of Christ, because it's it's a type, as we would say, to the crucifixion, we can see that in the crucifixion, healing, forgiveness of sin, all that is tied up in one thing, right? They used to call it the double cure. And that double cure meant curing of sin and curing of sickness and disease. Okay, now, notice this. The Bible says that by his stripes we were healed. Well, when did he bear the stripes? Before he was crucified, right? So that means that our healing was purchased before our salvation was purchased. Like I said yesterday, he could have bore the stripes and not went through the crucifixion and healing would still be available. Isn't that right? It'd still be paid for. Now, notice... Every time in the Bible that there is sin, sickness, disease, all these things, healing always comes before. It's amazing. I'm talking about on God's part. Right? God always pays for healing before He pays for the sin. It's amazing. Even in the uh, illustrations. We're going to look at it in just a second. But I will prove it to you because it's always first... Healing, and yet we tell people, get saved, get rid of your sin, and God will heal you. In James, we saw they got healed first, then they got forgiven. Here, on the, uh, when this was lifted up, right? They were healed because of the forgiveness. Jesus, by His stripes, you're healed first, then by His pouring out His blood on the cross, then you're saved. Healing comes first. There's nothing wrong. Matter of fact, even in Jesus' ministry, one time He said, go and preach, and then heal. Then another time he said, go heal and then preach. So people say, well, should I preach first? Should I heal first? It doesn't matter. 
whichever, whichever is convenient. If you get a chance, minister to them. Tell them the kingdom of God is... Now notice what the preaching was. It wasn't some long, drawn-out theological sermon. Essentially, he said, tell them this. The kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Then, heal them. So what do you do? Now, that's a pretty short sermon. Yeah. Isn't it right? And just tell them, alright, just to prove to you, you know, the kingdom of God is here. To prove it, let me set you free. Right? Why? Because you're oppressed. And in the kingdom of God, there is no oppression. Amen? Now, a person may not have faith for healing. Or a person may be in sin, may not even be a Christian. Can they be healed? Yes. Why? Because, now think about this, they don't have the right to the benefits of the atonement. But we as Christians, part of our covenant with God is the right to set the captive free. So even though they don't have faith, even though they don't deserve it, even though they don't, they, they're not uh, privy to the benefits of the atonement, you have a covenant with God to set the captive free. So they can be healed based on your covenant with God. They can be set free based on your relationship with God. Well, I just don't believe. I believe they have to have their own relationship. Really? What about Abraham? Lot was saved because of Abraham's relationship with God. Not because of his relationship. Isn't that right? Matter of fact, from all appearances, he was pretty messed up. Right? He shouldn't even been down there in Sodom. Right? He, he, out of greed, he ended up going the way he went. And he got tangled up in the affairs of that city. And, matter of fact, later on it even tells one of the reasons. See, we automatically say, well, the reason God hated Sodom was because of the homosexuality. That's not what the Bible says. It says because of how they treated the poor, and of how they treated the helpless, and how they oppressed people. Right? But whenever you do that long enough, it will lead to the debauchery that, that goes on and the moral slide down that they went through. So, you know, a lot of the things that we just automatically spout out sometimes isn't necessarily the, the whole truth. Now, next part. In, uh, yeah, let's move on to page. Let's see here. <clears throat> yeah. Page 26. How do we know that these two verses... We're referring to the same thing. And when I say these two verses, actually it goes to the page before, which is Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter 2.24. How do we know those two were tied together? Because of Matthew 8.16 and 17. And we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but I want to tie it together and show you in the manual where it's at. Because of Matthew 8.16 and 17, which says, When the evening was come, they brought unto him, Jesus, many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word. Notice he didn't say he laid hands on them. He cast out the spirits with his word. And he healed all that were sick. Right? That it might be fulfilled. Which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. So why did he heal the sick? Now notice he didn't just heal the sick. He healed all the sick. Why did he heal all the sick? So that it would be fulfilled what Isaiah the prophet said. When he said this. Saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now, if you go back and read Isaiah 53, it doesn't say that. But it's amazing because we read it in English, and when they translated the Old Testament and the New Testament into English, they didn't translate the words exactly across, exactly right, all the time. And if you go back into, um, into the Greek and into the Hebrew, you will find out that the translation of the words used in Isaiah 53 in verses 4 and 5, and then again down in verse 11 and 12, 
or this is a better translation of the original verses. Right? And actually what this does, this gives us God's commentary on Isaiah 53. Which proves it isn't just, you know, griefs and sorrows. We think griefs and sorrows, we think of mental anguish or, you know, being sorry and, and sad and that kind of stuff. And, but those words griefs and sorrows literally means and comes to mean maladies and sicknesses and, and infirmities and diseases. It means basically everything that comes against the human race. And he says here, Notice, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Some have tried to say that since Jesus fulfilled this prophecy at that time, that now he is no longer healing the sick, because that prophecy is fulfilled. Now, I've heard that, and it is ridiculous, because if you're going to say that, then you also have to say that when he hung on the cross, the only people that could get saved was the people that were with him then. If, if what he did then doesn't carry on over, then the crucifixion doesn't carry on over. And so we have to realize how, what it is referring to. To be fulfilled doesn't mean it's set aside. It just means that he accomplished what it said. Because I fulfill prophecy every time I lay hands on the sick. Because Jesus prophesied and said, believers will lay hands on the sick. It was a prophecy. It's going to happen. And I fulfill it every time I lay hands on the sick. I didn't fulfill it just once. Right? But every time I do it, it's fulfilled. So, here, he says, uh, Matthew, under divine inspiration, gave divine commentary that attributed the verse in Isaiah 53 to the physical healing of the people mentioned in Matthew 8, 16, and 17. Now, do you notice why Jesus healed? So that it would be fulfilled. You get that? He did it so that it would be fulfilled. In other words, God prophesied it through Isaiah. Jesus knew the prophecy and fulfilled the prophecy on purpose so that it would be fulfilled. Right? So he purposely, and, and when he tied that to physical healing, that proves that Isaiah, because remember, I said yesterday that people will try to take, it, it's the same verse as quoted in 1 Peter 2.24, and people try to say, oh, that's dealing with, with spiritual sickness, not physical. But here, Jesus tied Isaiah 53, which is again quoted in 1 Peter 2.24, with physical healing. Which means the people that say that don't know what they're talking about. That's simple enough? Believe it. I don't know if you know this or not, but believe it or not, there are actually people who preach that do not know what they're talking about. It may come as a shock, but there are some out there. Now, it says, it, uh, yeah, this ties physical healing to the atonement scriptures. And the verse is again brought forth in 1 Peter 2.24, proving also that the verse applies to physical healing and not spiritual healing from sin alone. Now, Go down to point five. If healing is in the atonement, it is an established fact. It's already done. Now see, this is probably one of the biggest changes you're going to have to make. You're going to have to quit trying to get God to heal somebody. And realize that God, His word is forever settled in heaven. God has already healed and set free and decreed their freedom, just like Abraham Lincoln declared the freedom of the slaves. Right? But yet it took a hundred years to realize it. Now, by the same token, you're going to have to get to a point where you're not trying to get God to heal. And you realize that God has already decreed it. So now, just like with the slaves in 1863, from that point on, the slaves were free even when they had chains on. Isn't that right? Technically, according to the law. That means that every person that put chains on them was violating the law. Right? 
Were there still slaves? Yes. Was it legal? No. Right? Now, that people say, well, I don't understand. You say we're healed, but I'm still sick. Okay? I'm saying God decreed you free. I'm saying that He made a law that set you free. I'm not saying that the devil bowed to that decree and said, Oh, okay, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were already free. I won't bother you. Okay? Because he is a criminal. He is violating the law that says you're free. He has attached himself to you, to you in some form through sickness or disease. And therefore he is trying to bring this thing on you. But it is illegal. Every form of sickness or disease, especially upon a Christian, is illegal. That's why when somebody stands in front of me, I don't ask them what they did to deserve it. I don't ask them what sin ties this thing together. I don't ask them about their generational curses or anything else. What I see is I act as a police officer for the kingdom of God. And basically, I serve notice when I'm speaking to people, when someone is standing in front of me to be ministered to. I don't talk to God. And I don't generally, I may ask the person what the problem is because I want to know what the complaint is is that they want to file against this criminal who is attacking them. And once I get the name of the complaint, sickness, disease, or whatever else it is, then I cease having my attention toward the sick person, and I turn my attention toward the criminal. And I tell the criminal what I want him to do. You will leave this body. You will leave now. You'll take all your, 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 all your little symptoms. You'll take all your little friends that you brought with you, and you will all pack up, and you will go now. See, essentially what I'm doing is I'm, I'm serving an eviction notice. Right? I'm, now, years ago, God delivered the eviction notice. I'm here to make them pack up and get on the street. You, you see the correlation? That's the job. So it is not my job to come in and find out. Now, see, the way Christians think is this. And I'm not saying this doesn't happen. I'm just saying it's not legally correct, even though you may agree with it. Right? And how it works. But this is how we think about it sometimes. If a policeman is called to a certain area, let's say he goes into an area that he knows the people in that house are drug dealers. They know it. They just can't prove it. But they know it. And yet, some, for some reason, they get a call. There's a fight going on. Somebody broke in their house. They make the drug dealers make the call. Now, generally, they won't make the call. But if they do, they make the call. The cop comes out and arrests the person that broke into their house. Now, what we try to do as Christians is we try to go into the house and look around and get all the evidence we can against the people that live there. Rather than going in and just doing our job of giving, getting that person out. Because do you realize that many times, depending on the legalities, you going in and seeing another problem there doesn't give you the right to arrest that person too. Because it would be, you would get it under wrong circumstances. You understand? You wouldn't have a warrant. I mean, there's, there's, there's legalities there that have to work in. Now, but of course, by the time you got there, they'd have everything put up anyway. Okay? If they have any brains. Okay? Now, but see, what we do as Christians, we try to go in and get evidence against the person who called us there, as opposed to doing our job and just setting the people free, and then trying to get this person to live right later on. You get that? Quit trying to find the blame and point the blame. Set people free. You're not the judge. See, there's, it's like I heard before, there's only two positions you can get. There is a person who lifts up, there's a person who humbles, and a person who exalts. There's only two jobs, exalting and humbling. If you take the exalting job, then that only leaves the humbling job for God. Right? But if you take the humbling job, 
that only leaves the exalting job for God. So, believe me, if you, you want to take the humbling job, you don't want God to humble you. Right? But if you humble yourself, then God will exalt you. But if you exalt yourself, then God will humble you. It's much better for you to humble you than for God to humble you. Amen? Much easier. So you humble yourself and God will exalt. You see? Well, it's the same thing. You are not the judge. Quit trying to take the judge position. You are the policeman. Take the policeman. The policeman is not the judge. Right? The policeman is not the judge. Quit judging. Do your job. Set the captive free. Right? Now, once they're free... You, that's where discipleship comes in. See, a lot of people say, well, where does this and counseling and all that come in? That comes in in discipleship. First, there's the freedom. Then there's discipleship. Most people try to disciple people into freedom. All right? That doesn't work. Because many times the people die before you get them discipled. Get them free. Then get them discipled. Okay? Now, he says... In uh, point five, if healing is in the atonement, it's an established fact, it's already done. God has made us a standing offer of forgiveness and healing through the crucifixion. See, people say, well, yeah, but between the two, one's more important. That may be true, but you don't have to pick between the two. Right? Well, you know, but if I had to pick, I'd rather have salvation than healing. Okay, only the devil and anybody working for him will try to make you choose between the two. Don't choose salvation over healing. Choose salvation and healing. Because healing is part of salvation. Alright? Don't settle for less than you have to. It's amazing. I pray for a lot of people. And they'll say, well, the, the, the serious thing is this. I'm like, okay, but does that, you got other things? Oh yeah, there's other things, but I can live with those. I'm like, if we can get the serious thing off, obviously we can get the lesser things off. You know? Why put up with any of it? Jesus bore the ingrown toenail just like he bore the cancer. Okay? Anything. I'm saying for the whole spectrum. Right? Don't put up with any. Let me, let me, a lot of things you'll learn as you do. One of the things I learned as I started doing is this. There are two types of people. There are passive and there are, are aggressive. Now, you can take a passive person and generally make them aggressive, which is generally what I try to do to you because I've learned that works better. But the church tries to make aggressive people passive. Okay? And that comes from an infiltration of Far Eastern philosophy into the church. Right? That's where it comes from. We see, we were at McDonald's this morning. And there they got their Asian salads. And it says, uh, you know, what does it, achieve inner harmony or something like that. Why? Because, okay. And I'll tell you, I have stood firm against eating those salads. Okay? <laughs> I refuse to compromise. <laughs> okay. Now, but, you know, people say, yeah, but what about, the Bible? what about the verse that says, you know, eat what's set before you? And I said, that's true, and I'm just careful where I sit. So, but the truth is, when, the reason we have things like that is because people see the Oriental philosophy and mindset, and they see them as a deeply spiritual people. They see them as having all this harmony and peace and all this kind of stuff. And in reality, it's not that they're so... They may be spiritual, but that doesn't mean they're godly. Right? There's a lot of spirituality out there that is not godly. And this idea of, you know, voiding the mind. The Bible never tells you to void your mind. It says renew your mind. You try to void your mind, you will get a devil. Alright? Simple as that. People say, well, I'm a Christian, I didn't think I could have a devil. Okay, 
If you void your mind, you will have a problem. How do you like that? You like that better? Okay. People get all, you know, worked up over a devil or a problem. Okay, if a person is an alcoholic and it's a devil when they're unsaved and they come into the church and they got the same problem, why is it not still a devil? It's real quick. It's a devil out there, but not in here. Yeah, but I thought, okay, I didn't say it's in your spirit. I didn't say he possesses you. But I'm saying it is your because if you're born again, your spirit is born of God. But your mind can still be messed up. Your soul is still messed up. What makes you think that that's not where the devil works? I can promise, I guarantee it is because that's where the Bible talks about pulling down strongholds. The strongholds are in the mind. And we're not talking about strongholds, well, principalities and powers. We're talking about strongholds in the mind when it says that our weapons are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. That's not talking about principalities and powers. That's over in Ephesians. This is talking about wrong teaching, wrong doctrine, wrong thoughts, wrong ideas, and all these other things, situations, that, you know, habits, and all these other things. That ex- it says anything that is, exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So you can, that's where the devils are, right there. And they can inhabit flesh, they can inhabit soul, those areas. But not, and, and if you died with that, you know, with a devil necessarily, especially with sickness or disease, it doesn't mean that you're not going to go to heaven. Because he doesn't possess your spirit, right? But your flesh. Cancer is in the flesh, it's not in your spirit. And if cancer is a spirit, you think, well, but a spirit can inhabit flesh. You do. You're a spirit, you inhabit flesh. Isn't that right? See, all these people have these... I, I'm, I was blessed. I, like I said the other day, I, I served under Dr. Summerall. Man, his stuff is just so clear-cut and simple. And he differentiated. He has a, a teaching on the total man, spirit, soul, and body. And he shows each one of them and how they work. And it's just... Man, when I saw that, I'm like, that's so simple. You know, Each part is different, and they overlap, and they come together. And you can tell... When I started ministering to people, the, um, especially spirits of infirmities, things like that... Um, Especially people that have had traumatic experiences. For instance, I'll just give you an example, one example. Um, many times, let's say a person, a, a female is molested or raped, let's say as a child. Then the spirit of lust that was in the person that molested that person, child or whatever, any, in, in any age, all right? That spirit, that lust devil in that person sought expression in this person that they were living in. And they sought expression through this rape or this molestation or whatever it is. Now, what happens is, during this traumatic experience, people, there is, the Bible says that only the Word of God is sharp enough to divide between spirit and soul. And there is... See, the spirit and the soul are two separate things. But they overlap. Right? They, they interact. And what happens is, many times through a traumatic experience, or let's say even in a, uh, give another example at the same time, like a car accident. The, you, you get hit, and in that split second, you tense. Isn't it right? Real quick, you tense up. At that tensing, many times, you ever notice after that, it's like you have a headache or something like that? It's because of the, not just the blood pressure and all that, but you will tense up to the point where there is a ripping, where the spirit and soul is literally ripped apart. It is ripped open. Now, I always say it's like a clutch. You push in the clutch and it opens up. At that moment of intense fear, it's in, it's, all this fear is condensed to a split second, which causes this opening. At that point, usually... In the case of a car wreck, a spirit of infirmity 
will come in there. Sometimes a spirit of fear, right at the same time. Immediately after it's over, the clutch lets off, and the spirit and soul are rejoined. Right? It's a, it's a defense mechanism. And when it's closed... Now, you read the Bible. You will find times when it says, My daughter has a devil. And other times it says, So-and-so is possessed of a devil. Now, we always read that to say the same thing. But it's not. There's times when people have devils, and there's times when devils have people. Now, when devils have people, you see them especially in the sense of... Um, how is it? Like in the, uh, the Madman of Gadara. The devil had the guy. Cut himself, broke chain, all the whole bit, right? But... In the case of the little, the little girl, the Syrophoenician woman, it says, my daughter is possessed of a devil or has a devil. In that case, the little girl had the devil. You say, how does that happen? Usually through a traumatic experience, the soul and spirit are ripped open, this devil comes in, afterwards it closes up. Now, when it closes up, the devil can't leave if it wanted to. It's caught. The person has the devil. You see the difference? And that's why, and through a series... Uh, of events, as I started ministering to people, I, I caught myself doing. I didn't even know what I was doing, but apparently, being led by the Spirit at the, at that time, as I started praying for people, a lot of times I would catch myself and I, I would say, all of a sudden, I say, "All right, in the name of Jesus, right now." And when I did that, they would jerk, and right then they'd be free. Well, what did I do? I recreated in reverse the traumatic experience that caused the spirit and soul to open. And when I did that, it shocked them, it opened, and that spirit went right back out. That's what took place. Now, when that happens, when, like in the case of a car wreck, with a spirit of infirmity, that's why many times right after the car wreck, you don't notice anything. But after, you know, in the next few days, next few weeks and months, you start noticing whiplash and there's no physical evidence. That's because that devil is there. Right? That spirit is there. That person has that thing. And you have to cast that thing out. Now, you don't have to do that to cast it out. You can cast it out. All right? But that's an, I caught myself doing that and realizing what was going on. Now, you can do the same thing. Go back to the person that was molested. You will notice that most... Let me... Let me I can't say most. Because most would be a figure that I couldn't correlate or check. All right? Many cases that I have been... Uh, known of or been involved in of setting people free in the case of a female that was molested and believe me it happens with males as much as it does females it's just not as reported as much alright but let's just at this case we'll stick with a female with a female in the case where they are molested or raped at a young age or even at an older age what happens many times is that spirit in the person that does the molestation and raping that spirit wants expression through them and whenever the incident takes place, then there is a place or a time when many times the people would kind of disengage and that spirit is passed. Okay? And they get the same spirit. Now, when they get the same spirit, see, it was a spirit of lust that caused the incident. And the person that the incident is imposed upon gets a spirit of lust. Now, that spirit of lust can take at least two forms of expression. Especially in a female, but also in males also. But especially in a female. In the females, what we've experienced is this. The two forms of expression is this. They will either become extremely... Now, you would think if a male molests a female, if there's going to be a, uh, uh, an expression of it in the female, it would be against the male. Right? Because a male imposed the act upon them. What happens many times is the female will actually turn against males and become lesbian. 
It happens, alright? I mean, I know, we've dealt with this a lot. On the other hand, the other aspect that can take place is this. Many, and this almost makes no sense, except because of the spiritual explanation. Many times, rather than turning lesbian, they actually become very promiscuous and begin having relations with many men. Alright? And they don't even know why they do it. But the reason they do it is because the spirit of lust that was in the male is now seeking the same expression through the female with males, which makes no sense in the sense that you would think, okay, if a male molests them, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with males, right? But in reality, it's because of the spirit of lust that is passed on. So the heart of the thing is casting out the spirit of lust, right? Now, the pers- this thing is in- now, this is the part that doesn't seem fair is that that spirit is imposed upon them during this time that they did not agree to. Right? But it is imposed upon. But, and people go through this all their lives without being free. But they can be free. Now, let's switch over to, let's say, males. The problem in the church is, many times, we have males, a person will come in as a homosexual and and maybe you know want freedom, and when you cast this thing out, the, the there are certain characteristics that come with every spirit. And when you cast the spirit out of this person, they are set free. But the church, especially the men in the church, will kind of ostracize this person because they don't want to be around him because of the reputation of you know, what he was before. When, and so what does he do? If he can't hang out with the males, who does he hang out with? He hangs around the females, which is the wrong place for him to be hanging around. Why? Because he's going to carry on the characteristics, more of the feminine characteristics that he had before. Now, you cast the devil out. This person is free. But, if you're going to cast this thing out and set them free, now you've got to be able to disciple them. To disciple them means they need to be around males that are going to help them and watch them. Because devils, when they leave, remember they leave and then they come back. When they come back, they are looking for certain characteristics that will say, I want you back. Now, in male homosexuals, not not always, and I'm going to be very stereotypical for the sake of illustration, but in male homosexuals, there are certain characteristics that are almost always present. They will take on the feminine, feminine characteristics, right? And so, whenever you're working with them, after they're delivered, there is such a thing called muscle memory. To where you do things certain ways just because you're in the habit of doing them. Right? I quit drinking Cokes for a year just to make sure that I could do it. Right? Just to make sure it didn't have me in bondage. And so I quit for a year. And so during that time, but the amazing thing was, I'd go into a, to a convenience store. And as I walked in, I would automatically go to the Coke box. Why? Because I had totally trained myself through years to go there. And I get there and I start talking like, oh, and I have to go over to the you know, water bottle box. So there is a muscle memory thing there, right? Now, that's true with every sin, and it's true with every habit, and it's also true with godliness that you can develop. You can have your senses exercised and trained to live godly, right? And now, with the homosexuals, let's say, and again, stereotypical, but a lot of times they will do things, you know, they'll have certain manners, you know, they'll, oh, you know, know, where they get the term limp-wristed, right? you know, or they'll, the hand will be on the hip, you know, and, and, or it'll be like this, right? And they kind of cock the hip. No. You know, you, you know but you, am, you, am I right? I mean, that's characteristics, right? Now, it's not always, but those are the stereotypical characteristics. Now, 
muscle memory. You're standing there talking, a bunch of guys standing there talking around, this guy's been delivered. But in the middle of it, he's not thinking. That's when muscle memory takes over. And he'll be standing there talking, and all of a sudden he'll laugh, and he'll put... (laughs) And he'll start doing things like that. Now, the males that are working with them should see this. And even in the middle of talking, they should be talking, not draw attention to it, but as they do this kind of thing. Now, get that off of there. We don't, we don't do this, right? Men don't do that. Men, men, we don't wait. We point. Bless God. <laughs> you know, we, we don't do that, all right? We, 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 don't, we don't laugh. You know, we laugh. Ha, 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 ha. You know. <laughs> we get to, you see? And you have to train them. And you might have to slap their hand. No, 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 get that down. No, no, no. Why? Because certain characteristics signal to demons that you are ripe for them to come in. Now, it works in everything. If you're doing yoga, yoga positions, each position is a position of prayer to a Hindu god. Every one of them, right? No Christian has any business doing yoga. Simple as that. The name yoga means union with God. And it's not Jehovah. Right? It is the Hindu gods. Now, when I was doing martial arts, to get a certain, to get my uh, fourth degree black sash, I had to do, take a technique and do a history of it and do a thesis on it. And so we had always done a particular technique where to block, you had to pull the hand up and it, you brought it up and then you drop it down. And it was called a tonsal, which meant palm up block. Right? And so, now, we did it this way in practice, but that's not the way you do it in real fighting because <laughs> anybody can punch around that. So you had to use it to block here. It's like a shock absorber, right? They would hit, and honestly, I don't care how big you are, how strong you are, you can swing as hard as you want. And I guarantee you, this will not, I don't care how small you are, it, once you learn to do this, it will not, you can't get through that. You're not going to collapse. It, you're, it stays this far apart, and it, it's like a shock absorber, right? So it's a good way of blocking. Now, no, you can do it this way too, which is easier. But the idea was, when I was doing this, I went to study to find out, okay, this was the technique I chose because nobody could make this work. And so I was studying it, and as I did this, and the idea is you, you come up, this is even with the eyes, and when you get here, it drops. So the whole technique was here, drop. When you did this, this part, I found out through reading. Nobody told me this, but I've been doing this for years. But I found out through research, going back and finding out where it came from in the original Chinese name, it literally meant asking Buddha for help. Right? But they didn't tell me that. They told me this is Tan Sao. This is a palm up block. Okay? But that's not the original name. It was called Buddha Palm or asking Buddha for help. Now, every time, I didn't know that, but every time I did that, I was calling on help from a demon god. Alright? And it energized me and made me powerful to a point where I could do things that is physically impossible. Alright? For instance, I used to do demonstrations. And I would pull a couple of guys out, usually the biggest guys I could find. And I would say, okay, you know, stretch your arms out. And I would make sure that they could penetrate with about two inches. And I would get set. And I said, alright, on both of you, when I say go, you punch, both of you punch, right here. One here, one here. Right in the abdomen. Not here, and not here. Right? In here. Right? And they would punch. And I, could, I was never knocked down. I was never knocked back. I was never knocked out of breath. I don't care how big. Right? It makes no difference. Why? Because I was energized by a spirit. Now, I did another thing which is actually more um, demonstrative of the demonic power. Because I would stand. We called it rooting. And I would stand. And I would say, first, come pick me up. I get some big old boy. The bigger the guy, the better the demonstration. They would come up. I'd say, lift me up. 
Okay, and he grabbed me and, you know, just tossed me around, right? I mean, I was, at that time, I was like 130 pounds. And so he did kind of talk to me, okay, what's the big deal? I, I said, all right, now count to 30. And I said, when you count to 30, pick me up again. While he's counting, I just stood, relaxed, and rooted. And as I did that, when he counted to 30, he would reach over to pick me up. And he, was, he thought he was going to do me like he did the first time. And he, would, he couldn't lift me. Then he'd get down and get underneath me and put his arms in my arm and he would try to push. And the most that ever happened, my shoulders would go up, but my feet would never leave the ground. He could not lift me no matter what. That was called rooting. How did I do that? It was a demon spirit that I got. Now, understand, the whole time, if you'd asked me if I was a Christian, I'd have told you I was a Christian. But I was absolutely possessed. And when I got out of the martial arts, broke free of it, and asked God to set me free of those things... Over a period of 31, 27 days, 22 spirits left. And I knew when each one left, I knew what they were and I knew what they brought. And everything to do with martial arts is a false gospel. It promises peace, it's a false peace. It promises security, it's a false security. It promises power, it's a false power. Every bit of it is a... Matter of fact, you take the martial arts in the church and they mirror perfectly. How they developed, they, they developed from one person who came along with a new way of fighting. He drew some disciples to himself. He taught them. When he died, they taught other students, and it continued on, and now they broke apart into little styles. Well, we have Jesus, who had disciples, who brought, and whenever he left, his disciples took disciples, and they went on out until it broke apart into something called denominations. It's exactly the same. And it's all spiritual, and no Christian has a right in martial arts, or religion. You understand that? There you go. Alright, now. Oh, i got to hurry here. Okay. <clears throat> Healing is in the atonement. Will you take my word for it? Because <laughs> we ain't got time. No. <laughs> Alright, I am going to have to sing. Uh, go ahead, let's take a break right now. <laughs> 